Hello, I'm Alex Totaro. And I'm Alex Goldstein. We're a couple of teeny nerds with opinions, and this is the thing that gets you to the thing, a Hot and Catch Fire fan podcast. This week, we're on season one, episode seven, called Giant, and the pressure's really on for Joe, Cameron, Donna, and Gordon. We're also just over the halfway point of this podcast's first season, since we've got today's episode to cover another three, and then a wrap-up of season one. In case you're new to us, here's the deal. We're re-watching the show on Amazon Prime in the UK and unpicking what we see episode by episode. We talk about all sorts of things. The plot, character, who's behind the camera, lighting choices, whatever leaps out at us that we find interesting. And don't worry, there are no future spoilers. We only talk about the episode we're on and past ones. Right now, Halt and Catch Fire should be on Netflix in the US and Foxtel in Australia. So wherever you are in the world, we hope that you can find it. It is more than worth the effort if you've not seen it before. And I don't think we need to sell you if you have. Okay, then let's get back to Cardiff, where things are starting to get personal. So. So we made it to episode seven. We made, we it, made to it to episode seven. Woohoo! I loved this episode. Same-sies. And I'm looking at you hoping... Okay. Same okay, I absolutely love this one. So yeah, because in the last few, we've been slightly on the other side of the seesaw from each other, uh, where I like yeah. some of the more kind of like, I guess, uh, conceptual ones. And I think you like the ones with a bit more pace, but this one, I think, like, lands on the perfect balance. I mean, I, I'm a fan of the conceptual stuff. The problem tended to be that there was a disconnect between some of the other elements and maybe, you know, like we talked about in the past, there's no movement on certain things and you kind of lost on another. This one reminded me of the pilot from the point of view of just the pacing of it all mm-hmm. and the editing and the fact that you get some conceptual elements, how, uh, but they don't get in the way or they help sort of package everything up if that makes sense and Absolutely. you also have the amazing score underlining what's going on and it just it also brings back some drama like some actual drama that can potentially alter where we go next that's sort of what we had with the pilot where it was setting everything up and if you guys all remember we talked about episode two being sort of uh five minutes of ibm and then we're done and then other little issues come about but nothing like we're facing at the moment plus some backstory so anyway that that's like my quick take on it yeah no I totally agree I think we've got um personal drama we've got actually kind of tangible professional drama because up until now it's the the question has been can they do it we now know they can do it now it's can they sell it uh you know can they launch this thing like Gordon has achieved something uh Cameron has achieved a lot but can they actually get the whole thing together uh, into a package that people will actually buy? Um, And interestingly, we've had another change uh, of director. Uh, We've got somebody in the writer's seat who has until now been giving story credits. So we've got Jamie Pacino, who's had some story credits before, but now she's actually leading on the writing for this one. Uh, And the director is uh, John Amiel. Forgive me if I've pronounced that wrong. Uh, and he has a mixed film and TV background. So, and really everything from, he's, he's a British, uh, well, an English director, uh, which is interesting. And he, his credits are things like the classic BBC miniseries, The Singing Detective. Okay. Uh, he also made a 
mid-90s serial killer movie called Copycat, which um, to this day makes me nervous about using public clues. Uh, and that is all I'm going to say about that. But I'm going to come back to his horror-y, serial killer-y roots on that one, because even though it's it's not necessarily completely typical of all the stuff that he's done, I think that he harks back to some of that uh, in this episode. And TV-wide, TV side, uh, before Halt and Catch Fire, he's got credits on The Tudors, which I love. It's so gloriously lurid. And uh, Once Upon a Time, which I've got to admit, oh. I also really enjoy, <laughs> which is extraordinarily silly. <laughs> well, Once Upon a Time was one of those uh, network, uh, you know, 22 episode sort of yeah. bring this into think- life or bring classics to life in a different way. I think that he had the classic come in to do do two episodes off you go again uh, thing. But it just uh, it struck me that he's had this amazingly varied uh, approach to things and to come in and be able to just grasp the tone immediately and make an episode that feels just like a classic kind of Cantwell and Rogers, uh, like just he's just come in and really and 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 together with Jamie Pacino who who clearly like gets this the heart and soul of this thing in and out um they they've really made something that feels like it should be a sort of stamp that's what a halt and catch fire episode looks like yes absolutely and actually it, it you're right it feels like this is this is it this is a halt and catch fire episode like we've learned throughout uh every episode so far and we've nailed the the pacing, the storylines, the script, and the look and feel, and it's it's great hearing you talk about who's behind the camera because it's not the first episode we're getting that is directed by someone that has a mixed background when it comes to television and film, and you know as we know by now the lines are blurring uh, more and more between the mediums, but also from sort of darker type subject matters, and one of the things that I noticed specifically on this episode is that. It is, it is quite dark. Maybe it is the fact that the lighting is, is, again, it's a show. It's an episode mostly taking place at night. The score intensifies a lot of the drama and heightens a lot of the quieter moments. But this one in particular, maybe with these more conceptual shots through Gordon, really does feel more, more dark, a little, a little bit more sinister. And we saw that with the previous episode, didn't we? We did. And it's funny, we were talking about with the previous episode, and I think neither of us remembered this, that we said, oh, when he saw that guy lying in the rainstorm, I thought it was him. I thought he was seeing himself. And clearly, uh, <laughs> I had some part of my brain had filed away the beginning of this episode, maybe, uh, because we, we, we enter the episode through Gordon's subconscious, where he is literally dreaming that the guy that he saw electrocuted in, in the hurricane was himself. Um, and from that moment, like there's a good half of this episode, like sort of any part of it that really deals with uh, Gordon and a little bit of what's uh, around Joe and Cameron has horror elements. Like there are psychological thriller horror elements throughout everything to do with Gordon it, in the way it's shot, in the way it's lit, um, the music, the score. I mean, it's I, I'm one, somebody who doesn't always notice uh, the score, but it like jumped out at me yes. in this episode how like eerie it is. Very eerie. And quickly to touch on the camera on Gordon, the camera is always sort of hanging on him and mostly handheld. He is the only character in this episode to get this level of treatment. And it's it's so well done because 
you can tell that it, it's kind of like he's drowsy to an extent. Like you can't tell whether you know he's with the girls, etc. You can't tell whether he's 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 a bit drunk, he's still dreaming, whether he's just exhausted and can't really function because of all the pressures that's going on. And the camera, to your point, really does feel eerie and and it just gives it that personality. And and I know I tend to be uh, the one always talking about like these layers and this helps to me illustrate what I mean by that, right? It is very layered from the point of view of um, we're getting a different camera work and treatment to a specific character, not even to a scene or an episode. That's the remarkable thing to me. Absolutely. And it's so beautiful because Gordon's first scene after that dream is him kind of narrating to himself while Don is trying to talk to him. And he's so wrapped up in his own speech or whatever. And throughout the entire episode, Gordon is totally in his own head. Never mind that he's woken up now. It, it, it doesn't matter. Waking, sleeping, Gordon is in his own world. And yeah. that the camera is li- the camera literally takes us into Gordon's world every time he's the center of a scene and then it feels so markedly different from you know later on we're in a a kind of very white plain art gallery with uh joe and simon and all these other and even when we're at cardiff and it's kind of uh green and glowy and nighttime it just feels very very different from this camera clinging kind of to the back of gordon's shoulder almost yeah just sort of following him around the room it really feels like it's something hanging all over him constantly and you can't figure it out. And the show doesn't really tell you. And I feel like this is why, why the show excels when when we dive into the symbolism because you know there's something wrong and you know that there's there's a lot to come, I think, when it comes to that, just from the hints that we're getting. Although you don't know if he's just so traumatized by what he's seen in the last episode. Although, from what point of view, right? Is it, to your point, seeing himself, if this project doesn't go well, uh, you know, going on by why Donna was telling Hunt, or is it a case of uh, something more psychological? For the purposes of this episode and what we've seen so far, I really read it the way Donna told it, that he's got this shadow, this spectre hanging right. over him of what happened when he tried to launch the previous thing. And and Donna saying, Donna, who has up until now shown very little vulnerability at all. Like, if anything, she's been almost slightly callous in like in the way that she treated Cameron or whatever. Um, and, you know, she's had this sort of experience locked in with Joe, but it, it hasn't really changed her. And if anything, she's just now opening the slightly vulnerable side to Hunt because he's the first person, I think, who has actually listened to her in <laughs> in seven episodes. Yeah. Uh, and you don't know, I mean, like there's a weird flirty vibe and all the rest of it, but he's actually asking her questions about herself. He's actually asking her about her. He's complimenting her. He's trying to draw her out of herself. And it's, I mean, it, it couldn't be more different than Gordon narrating constantly to himself and ignoring completely everything she's trying to tell him and all the stuff that she's done to make things comfortable and easy for him while she's away for like 48 hours. Yeah. And she's got to hide herself in a way from Gordon, right? You see her yeah. in the parallel between... In previous, uh, in that previous episode of her playing the piano in the in the garage versus her sort of playing the piano openly, uh, complimented by Hunt and, and and getting tips for it. I mean, night and day. Absolutely, this even the style of music that she's playing is completely different. Like she she uh, kind of moves into this much more kind of jazzy, relaxed vibe, and she's smiling. She's not sitting on her own 
in a in a garage tucked away from everyone where no one can hear playing this rarefied music she's out in public being like oh and she doesn't even need much convincing to go up and do it like it's been so long because she has been effectively mum to three kids this entire time because Gordon can't look after himself and she has been the the kind of fulcrum around which the house yeah she can be Susan Fairchild in this one and she is yes well one of the things that I wrote down with a question mark is Donna is being very Donna can we say this yet? And the reason I wrote this is because we know that, uh, in, 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 you know, we, we always talk about how we, we love the show because uh, it just gets better for this very reason. The writers and everyone involved just really figures out how these characters tick. And this is, I think, Donna at her purest in terms of uh, her vulnerability, the way that she treats uh, Gordon, but also has a little bit more a sense of identity, ironically, even though she's mimicking uh, the pseudonym that was given uh, by by Gordon, actually. So I love that Donna took pride in that and is almost not shying away from it. It's just like, yeah, I someone, you know what? Someone labeled me as this because they wanted to hide my true identity. I'm going to go, I'm just going to roll with it and, and, and be me for a bit. Absolutely. And I think where this show is particularly clever is it will take a tried and tested format and then just kind of mess with it a little bit. So I get very tired of the kind of bored housewife story where it's like, oh, she is married and has kids and therefore she must be unfulfilled and half a person. But really, it's not that she's married and has kids and that's what's ruined her life. (laughs) It's being married to Gordon specifically (laughs) because he's up until now, he's been awful. And now like, is he awful? Is he ill? Is he having a is breakdown? He both? Is he Yeah, no. Yeah, like, what, what's going on there? And so actually being married to that situation, yeah. even if Gordon can't help it, is really difficult. And, like, I don't want to suggest for a minute that if you are married to somebody who has challenges and difficulties that the thing to do is run off and have an affair with your boss uh no (laughs) they are a whole person your husband's a whole person too and certainly deserves respect but gordon you can tell yeah even if you look like donna and your boss looks like scott michael foster (laughs) i mean to be honest if your boss looks like scott michael foster i don't even no 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 absolutely not not even then uh (laughs) so Um, But in Gordon's case, you can just tell he has been just so hard to live with for so long. Yeah. Uh, And she's had to be to do the work of so many people for so long that it takes you into a gray area where you find yourself going, well, you know, maybe I could understand. And that's how clever the show is, that it's not the same as a sort of bored Betty Draper being treated badly by her dreadful husband. And you're just like, well, obviously, I mean, Don is just the worst, but it, that seems very flat by comparison, whereas this feels like it has like layers of complication. And when she talks about Gordon to Hunt on the verge of like doing something where they're flirting with each other, she's still talking about him with this immense like admiration and respect. It's complicated. And I love that they're not they're willing to lean into the complicated and go, it is possible to love someone, it is possible to care about them, to look after them, to worry about them, and also to be like frustrated to the back teeth of them well that scene and between that scene was interesting because i wasn't i thought the script there i thought some of the dialogue was it felt a little bit off for 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 that because of maybe it was the delivery but i do think it was more the writing there but to your point around the sort of bored housewife it was it was interesting when they were getting to the hotel and she was just so excited for someone to you know make the bed and i said she never traveled before right but that really played into it because, yes, we're being told 
look, Donna's never left the house. She's uh, always looked after the girls. She's always looked after Gordon. She doesn't know what fancy is, even though clearly she's uh, sampled some of it through her parents' wealth and has chosen to go down this path, which, again, we're not suggesting is uh, less than by any stretch of the imagination because they've they've got a sweet setup as well. Uh, but it was just her being able to break out of that bubble both in terms of her environment and her audience, right? I mean, when she stands up to that boardroom full of men and is able to just blurt it out, she, she, I really like her because she gets very mechanical and passionate when she is talking about the shit that she knows. And we previously saw this in episode four when she's talking about her um, dissertation when she with the magnetic strips and all the stuff that I can't. Uh, pretend to understand when all the tapes get erased, but uh, with all the discs um, were, were seemingly um, wiped. So she is basically in her element. And I think the writers really understand that her breaking out into her element um, has to be done like this, has to be out of, out of Gordon's eyesight. And he doesn't see her either, right? Um, that's that's sort of the other sad truth. He to doesn't. It. And the funny thing about it is, and in that moment when she blurts it out and she sort of surprises herself with that honesty, yeah. the person that she resembles most in the show is Gordon. Because it's that, you know, she, like Gordon, treads that line of trying to play the game up until they hit a wall and they can't, right? So Cameron never tries. And Joe is all game. Uh, so Cameron will just blurt out everything on the surface without like even worrying about it. Joe will be considered and will think about how to pull the levers. And he only yeah. explodes when something really hits hits a soft part of him, right? Whereas uh, Donna and Gordon both do a thing where they sort of try to be strategic up until the point where it bashes into a principle. And then they're just like, no, no, not doing that. I mean, Gordon in this episode is particularly like he's not even trying anymore. He's just being... A, a toddler when when Simon's introduced <sighs> and we'll come on to that but often in, when Gordon's in meetings you have that thing of him like trying to be super professional and then blurting out something stupid like he did with a Japanese businessman or whatever you know like he he kind of hits that point but when Gordon goes into self-destruct Donna like they're like a seesaw she she just goes off into space like she suddenly becomes the best version of herself um and I find it really fascinating. In that little moment, the way that she said that, I thought, well, now I understand why they got married. I can see the little common thread where, you know, where their passions intersect and how they are about their work. Because Gordon is clearly like work first, everything else second. And Donna up until now has not had the luxury of putting work first. And now she's in a completely work-focused environment. It turns out she's every bit as passionate and focused as Gordon is and kind of expresses herself in a really similar way to him. And I love that. I love that little thread of commonality because sometimes you can get to the point where characters are very different. You're like, uh, remind me why these guys would have got married in the first place. Yeah, but you, or you, you get to see those glimpses. Or the usual sort of, if a character, if a new character, character is introduced and they are uh, at first fighting, you know they're going to get together. Like, that's this is classic TV land, right? Like, opposites will eventually end up together. And I'm not going to start naming uh, examples because um, otherwise you're getting a three-hour episode. But the thing with um, Donna and, and Gordon is I love that we're still getting glimpses as to how their previous project has shaped them in a way. Um, and when she talks about how they made a pact and they wouldn't be like this, and um, she, in saying that, she truly, truly trusted them and 
that's not a light thing to do because Gordon is not trustworthy from that point of view because he is such a loose cannon to an extent based on his childishness, right? And to your point about them having that passion connecting them, and ultimately, this is what connects all the characters, whether they're involved romantically or not. The only reason that, and we see it, it's great to see it in this episode, sort of um, dotting the I's and crossing the T's, Joe having that level of admiration and, and that uh, being attracted to those he admires. And um, again, it's connected by those passion points. So we do have that intersection between, in this episode, I think, between the full realization of what, how far this passion can can take you and how low you can allow yourself to be to, to accomplish that. And in revealing that through Donna, we're getting a sense of where she fits in the world. So we know we know where Joe is in terms of the visionary who can talk the talk but can't necessarily do anything. We know, and he says it very clearly, Joe says it very clearly in this episode, we know Cameron is has got her eye well into the future. We know that she is all about like understanding the way machines and people are going to relate to each other. And we know with the benefit of hindsight that she's right about a lot of things. We know that Gordon is t- like so paralyzed that he can't see vision so when simon says to him um something like if we go past the spec we can really make something and as far as gordon's concerned he's already made it he made the impossible happen he put things in places they've never been put before to make this thing work but he can't see past the blueprint what we don't know is who donna is at work yet we know a little bit we've had a little slice of sort of understanding that she is somebody who she like really respects the project. She said, you know, look, they've already made something. Gordon's done something beautiful. He's done something brilliant. We know that she's not like when she talks to Cameron and goes, you know, your code is like music. I can't do that. So we know that she is on the engineering side of things, but we haven't really understood her vision for technology yet. No. Um, And I think we're starting to get bits of that through now. And I don't know whether it's because the show writers didn't know yet where Donna was going to fit into the spectrum and they were letting it unfold or whether they're saving it for something down the line where they're going to go, okay, now this is Donna's perspective on on technology. But we're only just getting bits of it now. Possibly both because um, the way I see it based on particularly this episode and that vulnerability that we talk about is her saying, we made this pact, we made this sort of arrangement, we, I believe in you. I think she had gone along with it from a point of view of maybe even saving her marriage by allowing Gordon to live out this one last try. And so her involvement has always been uh, enabling Gordon to, to, to play with that uh, to play in that space more than anything else. Now I think as she gets involved in the technological side, there is a lot more scope and opportunity for her to sort of continue with that. One thing that did surprise me on this episode was uh, them deciding to pull out of the uh, PC business through this move based on Donna's uh, sort of uh, observation of the the gain basically versus what they were spending patching this machine up now do we think she did this on purpose i have questions about that because that just felt way too easy i'm like well well, we and we also don't know whether they were a competitor in the first place you know that 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 was always odd to me from day one in terms of we we've been talking about whether this leads up to an affair or not and we sort of have an answer now we have 
But I'm, I'm sort of also wondering whether it leads up to something else to do with work, because Hunt's been asking her about work. He asked her a bit about whether she helped with the project. He yeah. kind of lets on that he read about Susan Fairchild and that he knows what that's all about. He yeah. then gets the spec that Gordon has faxed over and comes and brings it to her room. Now, we know True. at that point that the affair <laughs> isn't going to happen, but he's he's seen all that. And in the lead up to the boardroom, he was very much like, oh, you know, we can't we can't tell them anything kind of thing. And then as soon as she blurts out what she's thinking, he backs her up, which I don't know. He doesn't seem overly like the kind of person who would put his neck out for anyone. He's kind of oily. Well, uh, I yeah, I would, and I would have expected him to first resist that and be like, Donna, you can't do that. Yeah. And then they get a reaction and say, no, I was wrong. Like he's done in the past, right? So now I'm like, what is he What is he actually playing at? Because he was flirting, but he is also asking about work. And there's this like weirdly big grandstanding boardroom moment that felt a little bit Dallasy. And yeah, now I'm like, what, what what's going on here? But like, also some, he something's, has said... Something's brewing and I'm not, uh, yeah, I'm not comfortable with it. <laughs> Yeah, me neither. And he has said before, every time Donna brings something up that is outside of their purview, he goes, sorry, not our job, not our problem. We don't care if the company's losing money. So for him to suddenly dip his toe into the world of PC to get a sense of what's coming and then, I don't know, we, we're also seeing this episode have a financial, a lot of, uh, a huge financial um, deficit that that could put the whole thing in jeopardy, actually. So is this all related? Um, are we going to find that out? I, I just feel like, yeah, he's made so much of an effort to, like you say, to say, okay, no, it's not a problem. Like he literally says, yeah, but I want to keep my job. Uh, and then to suddenly ride to her rescue, flirt with her, convince her to play the piano. And by the way, he didn't ask her if she played the piano. He just said, oh, you know, you should play, which was a lovely bit of history building to go, oh God, these guys have known each other for a long time. And well, he knows high that she school, plays. Right? Yeah, and he knows that she plays, and it's a lot more subtle than it was the first time we met him when they kind of built out all the history with the, yeah. the foreign wife bit. Yeah. Um, and then having done all that, when she kisses him, he reacts as if it's the oddest thing like she could have done. It's like, oh, you know, it happens, but most people don't act on it. And I literally just wrote down in my notes at this point, I hate this man. I love Scott Michael Foster. I hate this guy. And in capital letters, I have written, he is not Nathaniel. Uh, <laughs> okay, not even early seasons Nathaniel. He is not any bit. No, no, because even he had a certain amount of directness to him. Jesus. Yeah, it, the whole, <laughs> so... in, in this case, the entire scene just plays out like the the old Texas macho stereotypes. And I have this in my notes also in relation to uh, boss and, and Joe going to that strip club, which which had a had some great moments in it, but we do still get glimpses of that, and that's fine because that's their setting, and I think we need to be constantly reminded of that. But one of the things that I loved uh, in this episode that doesn't have to do with the camera work, uh, actually, I think for the most part, aside from what we discussed on the Gordon side of it, the camera work just feels like it continues on the. Uh, style that we've seen in previous episodes which we've covered um but the color palette in this episode was something special there was a lot of red uh and donna i had never seen her hair so red and shiny and it really <laughs> maybe it's just me maybe i put it on my big screen just because i wanted to appreciate donna that's my donna appreciation moment um i guess you couldn't tell carrie bichet we love you and you deserve an appreciation moment every week everyone does but she really does deserve she it really does one. and her 
entire wardrobe, right? From her very sort of red hair to her coral salmon suit. She wears a lot of those salmon pink it, shirts. Like she wears a lot of that and like camel and khaki. It brings her down. It really, it really, it really positions her as someone soothing. And what I like that they've done is that she's wearing these kind of warmer pastel colors, but she's fiery, right? And because of her hair. Whereas then you have Cameron who flips. She's wearing this red bullseye suit and she's blonde. Well, we've, we've talked, we've talked before about how red is Cameron's power color, right? Whenever she's yeah, stepping yeah. into herself, she starts wearing red. And I love that they carried that through into this. Joe stays firmly in blue. Like even when he dresses down for the strip club and puts on the leather jacket, which can I just say was gorgeous 80s styling there with the, with oh, the yeah. rolled up sleeve, but like the pushed up sleeve is like hint of Miami Vice there. Except Lee, this one's for you. White. Uh, but, but like he's still in a blue work suit, uh, work shirt rather. Um, and he's still wearing at the beginning, he's still wearing the blue suit and tie. And like he, despite the fact that he, he sort of opened up the, the collar of his shirt in the last episode, he can't let it go. He's got his kind of costume. Gordon is always in, in basically earth tones. He always looks like he's crawled out of a hedge. Bless him, but he is always in like super muted, like hospital corridor colors. It looks like a yellow folder from like a filing cabinet. That's and his whole crew yeah. looks like that as well. <laughs> Gordon is like, yeah, you're exactly right. They look like just like a row of Manila files. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so just talking about that strip club scene for a second and the aesthetics of that because actually it does carry through that kind of eerie slightly like gungy neon dark greens and uh, purples and reds that have been running through the the episode i hate strip club scenes in films and uh tv like i hate them a lot they're all the same but i have to thank john amiel for two choices one is that he like lingered on the bodies of the strippers for as little time yes. as like it literally he established the shot and then we never really look at them again. Yeah. So I really appreciated that. But also whoever did the casting, thank you for including a stripper who actually looked like a stripper and not like an off duty model who's trying to break into <sighs> Hollywood. Like she had a relatively normal, slim, attractive body, but like it was just kind of like looked like a person who might just have an ordinary job. Yeah. Uh, and like full appreciation for whoever tried to make that scene as like unhorrible as possible because they are always and and you know the guy that they meet in there is so kind of like cartoonishly sleazy yeah <laughs> that, that it kind of made the whole thing beautiful and just to cut in just, just on that just to interrupt you on that thought i think the decision to not have any shots of uh women dancing around was to make the point that he goes to Joe, I've not seen you look at any of them or smile at any of them. And it's well done because we don't need someone rubbing their boobs on Joe to then make this point, right? No, not at all. And then he he gives what is probably the crudest, but also most insightful description of Joe that we've seen for a while, which is, I don't need to give you a dollar, you'll dance for free. And it was just yes. so icky and horrible, but also kind of on the nose. Uh, and... But what was interesting about the outcome of that scene then is, as you say, then he then goes on to, to drop a horrible slur at Joe. Yes. And, and Boss, Boss punches him. And which a whole leads theory, me to believe. A whole theory just goes down in the trash. Or, or well, 
That makes me think then it was Nathan who was behind the beating. Either that or we're supposed to think Boz just feels incredibly guilty about it. But I don't know. He It strikes me that maybe Nathan was the one that orchestrated it in the first place. And now Boz is just fed up with doing what he's told. It ties into when we were talking about that episode and Joe masterminding the whole Cameron thing in basically someone superior to the character in question uh, shifting them, making, forcing them into one direction. And it felt like this was it. Um, because I don't think boss could have, or would have, would have picked him up, would have pretended. I don't, I don't know. I, I think you're right. I think you're right. And he defended his honor. And this was pivotal, I think, because they, these two characters who have been positioned as, eh, rivals to an extent are finally coming to grips with something and we'll get to boss in a second but all those boss scenes were wow like this this the movement that we've been asking for and aching for is right here embodied in this single character who single-handedly has reached this point by watching and learning and and living that that context, right? Um, and I thought that was that was really well done. But um, I did like the styling of the strip club. The entire, again, the entire episode has loads of hints also around um, where they're based. And obviously that comes into play with this Simon character coming in instead of wondering why Joe is in the middle of nowhere. And I love that the photo exhibition had all these landscape photos of essentially nothing of this <laughs> Silicon Prairie. And that was a nice, um, those were nice signs. Again, we're getting back into a territory where we're not told. You can just see it and pick it up if you want to. And if you don't want to, it doesn't really matter because uh, it helps shape the characters and, and how they interact. Well, Simon has been, a, was a really interesting addition. And I am quite sorry that the end of the episode implies that that's the last we're going to see of him. Yeah. Um, because I actually was just beginning to, uh, get under his skin so played by db woodside who is i awesome. know best i know him best as principal robin wood uh in buffy the vampire slayer and, oh he's, he's uh, okay so i've been watching lucifer and he's on that as right. um an angel and he's phenomenal fascinating so it so he was the the son of the slayer that that dukes it out with spike uh in uh, in one of the in like the in season six or seven i forget uh and ultimately has a relationship with both buffy and faith so um i know, mean full marks to to robin wood who really picks yes no women because no, faith no, is a very good choice <laughs> charisma you can't go wrong with charisma oh that's true but she wasn't really that important by then or had she left already i can't remember she, i think she might have left the series by then because then she skipped to angel Right. Uh, so. Well, wonder, wonderful actor. And sorry to cut you off on this particular thought, mm. but great guest star with a great role, which we haven't yeah. seen so far. Absolutely. Like he's got, like in a very short space of time, establishes a lot, uh, a lot about Joe and enough about himself that I can think of him as a, as not just a like plot or emotional lever for Joe, but like as an interesting person in his own right. And he's also a kind of hint to me. I was looking at it going, this is Jonathan Ive, right? This is Joni Ive. This is who is going to come in and shake things up for people in the future. Like he's a little yeah. bit early to the game, but he is establishing that people are going to start to want tech items 
as beautiful yes. consumer pieces and not, you know, Gordon sort of says that thing about people don't care. They just want it to work. And it's like, oh, Gordon. Go back Gordon, in your Gordon, following Gordon. cabinet. Last week, we talked about the software having an interface and a graphic design led personality. And now we're getting to the hardware aesthetics, which I loved again, because it continues to try and push boundaries. And I know exactly what you mean in terms of it was everything was kind of like neatly tied into a bow, like, oh, I've already done the casing before you even asked me. And I know the show has a tendency of not really showing us the boring bits. And I'm using air quotes here because obviously if we're watching the show where we have some level of interest on how these things get done. So we we do skip over and get to like certain milestones. So for me, first of all, the fact that they were thinking about what it looks like was really interesting because as far as we knew, it was just going to look like any other piece of hardware from the from the era a box this, this, a beige box yeah um, or a, a brief or maybe a gray box if they're being really edgy yeah uh but this is the thing you know that joe is such it's so correct of the show to read joe that way i think all the joe that they've given us so far is a salesman a guy who cares about the appearance of something if if not as much as sometimes more than the thing itself um he cares about the kind of emotional connection that people have to it. And a lot of that comes from the outside in, as we know that, you know, how he approaches his own appearance. And it makes absolute sense that he would already have had the marketing team drawing stuff up that he would have yeah. called on. And and the fact that, you know, he obviously has an incredibly delicate background with Simon, because this is not a casual relationship. This was brief, but extremely intense. They talk about love. It clearly, like, I mean, he he says, you know, that guy messes me up. Like he admits to that vulnerability to to Cameron, even though when we first, first, first hear about Simon, when he's on the phone to him, it's that, you know, Joe and Cameron have just had this immensely like intimate moment. They've literally yeah. electrocuted each other and then had yes. this kind of big emo emotional romantic moment. And then Simon calls and he shuts the door on her. But then later you kind of creak it back open a bit and you can sort of see a tiny sort of sliver of vulnerability in Joe. So this is clearly quite an important thing to him, but it's so vital to him to get this project in a place that he's proud of it, that it looks right, that he is willing to kind of tap open that emotional mine again, just to get the job done. And versus some of the other characters that have come in to, that we've seen have hints that there's been a past with Joe, not in, the, not in a romantical sense, but the guys from IBM, the journalist that we didn't really like, um, this guy actually comes in and he seems to be someone that Joe really wants to impress. I mean, Joe flat out ignored his father in town. And, you know, I can understand that not being the same type of emotional relationship, of course. But we are talking about two people that have um, maybe, I mean, one potentially neglect the other, maybe even too much. But we are talking about two people that he may potentially consider an icon uh, from from the admiration point of view. And I quick fun fact that is not on IMDb and probably because the show aired when it aired but they talk about Simon having designed the DeLorean and oh yes Lee Pace has played DeLorean himself in Driven which I think came out yes, last year yes he has yes so I still haven't seen that but yeah he did nice he's very good so here's a little a nice little um coincidence for all of you I'm gonna go and add it to IMDb later and, and, and quote their podcast but um yeah that was fun and of course at this point the delorean it's a lovely little bit of kind of 
almost like foreshadowing from uh, Gordon. Like he talks about the DeLorean, basically. No one caring about that because it doesn't doesn't do what True. it's supposed to do. Yeah, but it's just about to become maybe may, maybe the most famous car design in the world Ever. because in in a year or so, Back to the Future is coming out. <laughs> so, but, but that's all it, it was. Hasn't right? happened because yet. It, it didn't work, and that that's that's the fine line between things that uh, Gordon's not wrong function over over style but we've already seen gordon have to concede he sees it like this right he sees it as fine you force my hand i'll give you that additional like you know 1000 kb or whatever of ram and he doesn't believe in it and i think he is spiraling down a path of, of off the back of that and quickly to touch on the uh, electrocution scene i do like that we continue the theme of uh, of sparks in a completely different way than what it was in the previous episode so maybe this is why it felt more cohesive and that we continue that momentum because we kind of just jumped straight into that uh, key scene from the previous episode. Well, there were a couple of key scenes, obviously Lee Pace uh, uh, looking up in, in the rain was, um, you know, we, we added that to our desktop background, but um, which we cycled through, obviously Carrie Bichet and the, um, but I, I think, that gave it really nice continuity. And we are talking about a show that, for all its strengths, is not very bingeable from the point of view of it doesn't really leave you in a cliffhanger. So for them to start connecting the dots as best as they can to make sure there's a threat for people to want to get back, and it's the same with this episode. That's what I meant about the drama from the pilot. It gives you something that you can chew over, not only while watching, but also thinking, oh, wow, What's, how are we going to get to the next step here then? Like we're invested in a different way. And although every episode is is quite kind of distinct in what it's dealing with and some of them are faster and some of them are slower, they, there are certain touch points that they come back to over and over again. And one of the things is the is the morning routine, right? We've seen that happen in three or four episodes now where we've cycled through everyone's morning routine. And this episode felt like a slight subversion of that because we are still doing everyone's morning routine, but we're doing it in the middle of the night. We're doing Gordon waking up from a nightmare. We're doing Cameron and Joe should have been asleep by now, but aren't. Uh, and there, and you know, you've even got Joe's long-suffering secretary coming in and going, you know, can I get you something to eat or whatever? And and you know that by now he really should have just stopped things and gone to get some sleep or whatever. And we're we're doing it, but we're doing it three hours early. Um, and that's why everything seems off kilter. Everything seems off balance because no one should really be awake at that kind of time. <laughs> no one should be going through that. Yeah, that's how you know that things are heating up, right? And and I think that's why we have so much red everywhere. I, I had noticed uh, in Cardiff Electric those red and yellow sort of circles or even some green. I was like, are they in the same office? Um, some of the hotel decor that Donna stays at, that red carpet and those tones, um, again, in, in, when she's looking at herself in the mirror, et cetera. So maybe this is uh, more more sort of throwing resources at giving us that impression that things are really, really heating up and it will come to a head. But you're right. I think Oh yeah. those moments continue to link the characters together, even though they don't interact at all in those scenes. Absolutely. And we've got like, like Cardiff is eerie. Cardiff is actively eerie at night. Like we've talked before about how during the day it takes on this very bright corporateness uh, and it yeah. feels quite, apart from Cameron's dungeon, yeah. it all takes on this kind of bright brightness, apart from Boz's office, which is always cast in a like yellow, 
warm glow, which it continues to be even when Nathan invades it. But in the room where Joe and Cameron are working and then ultimately not working, um, it takes on Cameron's lighting. It takes on that yes. green basementy glow. And it's like she staked her claim to this part. And Joe is in her world, uh, not the other way around. And then when he goes back out into the office to take Simon's call, the light all comes up. It all goes to that more corporate, like floodlit, uh, fluorescent lighting feel again. And they're getting very good. And I think they were very clever in the way that they decided when this episode was going to take place. Because having it take place at night or early in the morning means that you don't need Yo-Yo or some of the other guys to interact with whatever is going on. Yes, you see Gordon and his um, team of um, Dungeons & Dragons uh, mates, but you that's it, right? You, you just get to the key people in key moments. And I feel like as long as they tactically use those moments to avoid having characters that don't really add anything, then we see a lot more momentum in that continuity. It's the same with Cameron's weirdo uh, vodka uh, seeping uh, lady, right? Like she shows up and... Yes. Is that is that the same lady who she met in the street? Yes. Okay. I, I couldn't... I was like, she looks really familiar. Is she one of the punks that Cameron met out in the street? And I was like, you know, it is her. And it's sort of really a lovely little insight into Cameron that they stayed in touch. Yeah. Because in that episode, you get the sense of like a transient, okay, they're all going to get drunk and have a party and do whatever in this hotel room. And then you'll know, you're never going to see these guys again. But actually she's made a friend. Cameron is capable of making a friend. And yes, she abused her slightly. It, it, like, just like, ah, you just got me here for the ride. And it was like, yeah, a bit, but you're going to get free drinks out of it. So, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's really quite sweet. And also, it, yes, she obviously asked this woman for a ride, but it also feels a little bit like Cameron needs backup. Like she senses that whatever she gets out of Simon, it's not necessarily going to be that pretty and here is where i have to have my um mackenzie davis appreciation moment because yeah bring it on that shot where simon explains his past feelings about joe oh my god and reveals how difficult a person joe is to love the camera stays on cameron's face yes joe uh, sorry simon actually comes out of focus while he continues to talk like actually all that's important is her reaction to this information. And she she just plays it so beautifully because she is clearly devastated, but she neither under nor oversells it. She just, like, you just watch the tiniest shifts of expression and it's utterly heartbreaking. So um, big Mackenzie Davis moment this week. I see your big Mackenzie Davis moment and I double that with the end of the episode when she's in the car because it is exactly the same level but almost more because she's 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 thinking something and i love that scene actually when joe comes running back because it didn't feel cliched it didn't to me to me anyway it didn't feel like um predictable you honestly thought she was going to drive away because you were like right these two are off in the dark there clearly they're having a moment and and clearly they have a bond that is is not penetrable by someone like cameron but actually we in this episode, get the other way around that goes against what we predict. And I mean that about Joe in that circumstance. And I mean it about Donna kissing Hunt, which I was not expecting. And I didn't remember. No, 
No, I didn't. No, and I didn't remember. It I thought it was going to be the like, lift. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was going to be on the lift, and I thought he was going to do it, even though it looked like he yeah. was going to do it. He's a tease, but yeah, I didn't remember that, and I thought, hmm. And in that, that I mean, that whole scene with Simon, with the revelation that we can go on to to talk about in a minute. But that whole scene when he leaves the cab and the camera stays with Cameron and you see that through the back window yes. and then you come to, come to the two of them and you see Cameron in the back window from them. And it's continuing that whole over the shoulder shooting that we've had going on through the whole episode, but it really like doubles down on being able to use over the shoulder and this framing device at the same time. And then when he runs after the taxi, I was like, I honestly thought it was going to continue speeding up and away. And we were just going to see Joe standing there kind of having been left behind by Cameron who like who who is like like Joe she runs away from things that she can't unpick um she does it a bit more dramatically than he does but we know he obviously set something yeah. uh, up in at IBM you know something happened uh and then when he actually catches up and comes in and then they have that devastating little exchange where she sort of says are you getting bored of me and his answer is the extremely unreassuring i don't know <laughs> And yet somehow that brings them closer together than if he tried to reassure her. Like his honesty is surprising and disarming and and possibly a good thing in this weird messed up relationship that they have. Yeah. And I was really disappointed that they don't get more, I'm going to be a bit corny, but like happier times together that you can see them actively connecting in that in something that is not related to work i'm not saying like go to a restaurant or anything yeah. like that because that's not what they're about but um it seems like we only get to see their fights and those harder moments and sometimes um it makes it difficult to understand where they're at because we don't know really what they've lived through together although this yes. scene proved to be a great way of showcasing that because that gesture of joe sort of coming back to her and actually the gesture that he had with Simon also says a, a lot about him like he got off the car and was willing to hear him out and 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 face him and say sorry but what we had was it's in the past and yeah you do get the sense that is the same going to happen with Cameron because history repeats or is she different and this is the first time that he's actually admitted that she is the future and that she is brilliant. And that's not a light thing to take when it comes to, from, from someone like Joe, I think. No, and Joe clearly has is drawn to people that can go that extra mile. Like he's obviously drawn to Simon in the first place because he talks about sort of falling for him at a conference where Simon's presenting work and things like that. So he's obviously drawn to his genius. He's drawn to, you know, how he does things and how he looks at the world. And he's clearly drawn to Cameron by her her vision of the future. And you just think, at what point does that expire for you? Now, for Simon, it was at the point that Simon said, I love you, and realized that Joe was in no way equipped to return <laughs> that sentiment, whether he felt it or not. For Cameron, it might be something different, because I, I find it harder to imagine Cameron saying, I love you, as freely as someone like Simon who like it's funny because the whole through the whole episode Simon's been angry and guarded but actually he is the most honest of everyone quickly like yeah Joe becomes honest but you have to beat it out of him whereas Simon like the minute that he's remotely pressed he will just tell you exactly what he feels and what he thinks 
The one thing that I thought was a little bit of a shame, and I understand that this was about rooting it in place and time. And on the one hand, we have a bisexual character like Joe in the 80s. Um, it's almost impossible to avoid the fact that AIDS is going to be a massive topic of conversation. Like yeah. you can't ignore what was going on at the time. <laughs> As it is, politicians ignored what was going on at the time to the detriment of, of huge numbers of, of gay men. Sounds familiar. Um, yeah. And there's that. So from that point of view, when Simon says, I'm sick and never explains what he's sick with, but you know, because you filled in the historical detail in your head. Um, I just thought it was a real, I, I get a bit tired of gay characters in shows being put through the kind of emotional ringer uh you know there's a whole trope about kind of just killing off characters to to create more misery for for other gay characters and the fact that he's the first uh black character of note that's true um, also feels it also feels wasteful uh and i really i I think it's just that i get this feeling we're not going to see him again and I, I'm sad because he made a really big impression in a short space of time and I, I wanted to get under his skin a little bit more. And I get that. And I think it is wasteful to throw away such a great character. But I also think the reason he was such a great character is because he wasn't introduced like a like a love triangle. It was never going to be that. If he would have come back into play, it might have turned into something like that or actually maybe the, the the writers are forcing Joe's sexuality to an extent in terms of are you going towards the man or the woman here or or what's it going to take for you? But it would have been great to see him maybe in an arc, maybe two or three episodes where he goes through the process of building the thing that he's building, that he's already built. But I also understand that the writers brought him in to do that one job and he accomplished that. Now, that doesn't take away from all the points that you're making around his race and his sexuality and his history. But yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? It's like, how do we get characters that stick around that really offer something? But the episode did well also in how it revealed some of the past way better than some previous episodes. Again, the entire IBM thing, the entire father thing. We're talking, I've written down, boss is married. Like that was another revelation there that I had no clue in it. It's actually mentioned like three times in the episode, so you can't miss it. But then clearly there's are issues there. Yeah, I mean, we, so we see his divorce papers and it's interesting. A lot of what we see of Boz in this episode, and I really am beginning to warm to him a lot. Like I, I started that in the previous episode and with that punch, I really, uh, I, I really yeah. loved it. But a lot of Boz in this episode is reaction. Apart from the, until the punch, he doesn't really take action with anything. And then after that, he seems to feel free to go. He, I think it's after that that he has his sort of... Um, moment like where he pulls the magazine forward and he starts reaching out for the phone so like it like he has this moment where you can see that he's maybe gonna do something a bit more rebellious like up until now he's really towed the party line but after nathan yells at him and you expect him to go okay i'm gonna have to pull the plug on this whole thing you get a spark of something out of boz that is like nah tired of this i'm, I'm gonna do something different or you know i'm gonna change things up here 
and it, it up until then he's a lot of his scenes he's been really quiet he's been the one being shouted at or he's been pondering his divorce papers or you or know catching just, up right yeah. trying to learn and, and understanding what's going on yeah well i wrote down uh in, in that scene where bosses explained to nathan like you don't know what these kids are building that i wrote down bosses the revelation of the revolution because he is that person in the outside looking at that third shelf everyone else gets it in a different way and we follow along because we are you know 40 years ahead of what what happened we know that um consumer electronics um develops at a rapid pace but he embodies that sort of spark and wonder again the sparks that we've seen throughout this episode especially in the beginning and i think that's that's a beautiful thing to see because you don't really you don't even get it with the, with the kids right when they're playing with the with the watch or some of the other stuff they just kind of go eh. donna sort of says it but it doesn't come with the same level of weight as someone like boss who has completely been transformed from that first scene to where they've gotten to to the point where he's going to make a, a decision to uh, put his own life at risk by um, signing over the house or maybe it ties into him not caring what his wife gets in the divorce good on him yeah i don't but... get the feeling that there's like i animosity no i don't get a sense of animosity i get a sense of people who have run their course and he's probably more sad about it i like he just seems reluctant and sad but also he doesn't bring it to anyone else like we're the only people who know that he's getting divorced um nathan says you know go home to your wife and it's it's slightly ambiguous you don't know whether what he means is go and patch up your marriage and he knows or whether boz just hasn't told him um and he doesn't like Joe interrupts him while he's looking at stuff. I think it's Joe or Gordon. I can't remember which, but somebody interrupts him while he's looking at stuff and he just kind of puts it down and moves on from, from the, the divorce papers. And he really keeps it under his hat. And it, it's that little reminder that there's more going on in Boz than is on the surface. And, you know, you just, you just want them to unpack that. You want Boz to eventually have the Boz episode. Uh, and, and it feels like it's coming. Yeah, right? yeah. It feels like we're finally getting there. He's earning it. And the show is earning it and yeah i i'm i'm excited for whatever's coming down the line with boz because he's bought in now like that like the hardest man in the world to sell because he's a technological dinosaur and his processes are really old school and pick up the phone sales guy like he's got reputation to protect his p- private life is falling apart like he should be the hardest sell of all with this project um, but he's finally like, and he's obviously suspicious of Joe as well. <laughs> like, there's clearly like mixed feelings about that about Joe there. So, and Nathan, this episode really showed me because this is probably the most screen time we get from him, and I yeah. don't like him as an actor or a character. I just find him to be really flat. And when he goes, well, when you run out of money, the the project is is out, and it's like really the CEO of a company thinking that just waste the money and then shut it down and make it as heartless as that is as well. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. No, I I wasn't sure whether that was supposed to show us that he was a more of a lucky businessman than a shrewd one. That if it was more about like, oh, he just happened to hit the right thing at the right moment. He hasn't really run into any difficulties. So he's not really a good businessman. He's just a lucky one. Yeah, he's kind of vision. And it must have been that sort of we struck, you know, we got oil to to keep it with Texas. Yeah. Let's talk about the giant 
And that's the name of this week's episode. They're getting a little bit more straightforward. <laughs> I love that backstory on the giant because it wasn't just Gordon talking about what was going on with him and Joe clearly and probably many other stories that are similar um, that talk about a visionary and a doer and how you come together and you come apart with you know, with this level of resentment and it really reminds you of Succession. Um, I don't know how far you got in Succession. A few episodes and I will go back to it. And I, I don't really know why we stopped watching it, but I, I, I think I saw enough. That, no, I, I really will. But I think we saw enough episodes and start to get the dynamic you're talking about. Yes. In Succession, you've got Logan Roy, the big head honcho, and his brother have a similar history around who came from, you know, both come from nothing and only one of them succeeded and, and the other stayed in the, in the farm. So I, I really like that we get this moment of Gordon with the girls where he can actually explain and bring that to life. Not, I mean, not to mention that he wanted that to be the name for the machine because it really spoke true to what the company was founded on. Whether that's good or bad, right? It's good from a point of view of there was innovation there, but bad from a point of view of bad soil, uh, to continue the agricultural references. It's funny because when he first blurts the name out, he's doing it to insult the machine, to talk about how big it is, <laughs> uh, almost. And and then the story kind of eases out of him and that he casts Joe as P.T. Barnum, not as a visionary, but as a salesman, uh, as a person who who is best remembered for exploiting people um and and for creating uh, situations where where you know creating and and I use this word not about the people themselves but about the way that they were received creating basically a freak show which is um a terrible way to use yeah. people and it, that he casts joe as less of a sort of uh, what will become a jobsian visionary and more of a kind of circus showman is really a very interesting take on where Joe's because at the very beginning he's been so from the very beginning he's been really quite adoring of Joe like certainly arguing with him but always fascinated by him and it's starting to take a really like a creepy sinister turn now and this episode really heightens that again with the score and the and the lighting and 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 what's at stake both personally and professionally what do you want to call the computer Con the control control the contrail. the contrail. So basically the stuff that comes out the back of a plane. <laughs> the vapors. That I, come I, did, the I did love that Gordon brought that up in, in such a crude way. And another tone for the episode, not just with Gordon, is that everyone kind of spoke up and was very loud to one extent. Maybe that had something to do with the episode just being more dramatic. Like everyone had a moment where they were just yelling at someone else, whether it was Cameron, whether it was... Um, Actually, not not so much Joe, but yeah, Gordon just could not help himself. And he just also couldn't find the words to articulate anything. It was like peak Gordon child. And the way that he the way that he plays with the girls was actually quite scary because he it felt like he was losing it. I don't know. The, the sinister bit about naming it giant, knowing the history yeah. is also very dark like the whole the whole of that the way it unfolds with the girls from when he cuts his hand yeah and it it the blood drips into the sink like really horror movie ish kind of like thuk, thuk, straight onto the in, into the stainless steel of the sink and then when he's talking to the girls but 
the whole time the camera, like it does touch on the girl's reaction a little bit, but mostly it stays centered on his face and on the reflections in his glasses. Like he's not really seeing them. He's just seeing himself. Uh, and, and from the beginning, he's been talking into the mirror and ignoring what Donna was saying. And then at the staff meeting, he's sitting on one side of the table. Everyone else is grouped around the other side. The meeting with Simon, he doesn't even really look at Simon. He just blurts out stuff. Um, and he's sitting, again, as far away as possible from Simon, facing kind of forward in such a way that he's not looking at Joe. He's not really engaging with anyone. And then even when he's looking after his daughters, like, like he throws away what Donna's made for them to eat just to make his point that, you know, he's not going to he's not going to run to anyone else's. He's not going to dance to anyone else's tune now. But then he's they're helping him with the sink. And again, he's not really engaging with them. He's just their props. And that was quite funny because I remember writing down, look, there is nothing more unrealistic than telling two young children to go get into their PJs and they both do it without an argument. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. but it sort of underscored the fact that they are props in the scene. They are props for his story. And then when they go out and start digging uh, and he comes out to join them, the, the torchlight lights him up from underneath. Yes. And it really reminded me of like when you tell scary stories around a campfire. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So it, it had yeah. that kind of look of are like... Are you afraid of the dark? Yeah, God, remember that. Uh, and uh, and it the whole of Gordon's last sort of ten minutes in that episode just get increasingly horror movie esque. And this is where I wondered if it was like you know harking back to Copycat, because then you've got Donna coming through the garden to find him, and he is in what looks exactly like a grave. Uh, you know, he's digging six feet down. And she, the way that she grabs one of the girls when she's sleeping on the on the floor after seeing the blood, she's just like, wake up, wake up, are you okay? And she's like, yeah, I'm just sleeping. And she just like kind of drops her there again. It, it, it runs outside. It feels like watching the build-up for like Scream or something because you've got somebody yes. who left the house perfectly fine, left, you know, food in the fridge and, uh, you know, everything was perfect and all they had to do was just do what they had to do and go to bed. And she comes in and it's like someone's broken into the house. House. There's blood dripping all over the floor. Her children are asleep on the floor of the living room because they've got tired of daddy digging a hole. And actually that moment where she went, oh, go back to sleep. And I was like, oh, I think the only thing that justifies her yeah, going yeah, on, the floor. on the floor is the fact that she's terrified about what's happened to Gordon. And I like that the whole kiss scene led up to this, because if we didn't have Donna coming in to have this moment, we wouldn't really get that sense of horror film. And the camera inside of that, hole that they're digging with, with where you can barely see Donna because of how far low it is, how, how, how deep he's dug. And all the light is concentrated in that pit. Uh, so when she's walking through and you've got the kind of spindly silhouettes of the trees in the background and the light just catching on the edges of her hair. And that again is like, it's like the a kind of stalker scene from a, from a horror movie. You feel kind of feel like she's going to wander out and, and find the Blair Witch in a second. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and then there's Gordon and like Scoop McNary does a brilliant like paranoid glare. Yeah. Uh, it's absolutely wonderful. Like like he just has a glassiness to his expression that is absolutely wonderful. Um, but that whole thing, like it, it, it made me unsettled. It made me unnerved. And then the music building up to that last tiny little like I don't even know if it, you can call it a note. It was just like a sound at the end on which the episode ends. Um, and we haven't had an episode end like this before. We haven't had something that 
really makes you question like, what the hell is going on here? Um, are the things that we saw before with Gordon with the whole flower thing and the, and the mother, motherboard and the electrocution, like what is going to happen? Because these guys are like getting ready to launch this machine or they're just sort of the case is done apparently and we're, we're getting there. Um, it also left me really unsettled. Again, I think the score was done brilliantly and I like that they, they really play with it a lot. And we've seen it be quite nostalgic and intense like it's we get a lot of great songs on here as well actually um but in terms of soundtrack but the score has never been happy or chirpy or like the only tones the show does are drama or dark actually which is really interesting because Comparing again with Mad Men, sort of going back there for a second, you, it couldn't be more opposite, right? Like, I don't think you would have these kind of scenes there because it, it just, I don't know, you, it would feel really out of place with that glossy world that you're going into. Whereas this is, we covered this before, sort of not that. Yeah, I mean, if I recall correctly, Mad Men has at least two instances of suicide in it. Uh, and weirdly, both of them are treated... I like I don't know like one one of them is at a distance uh, the other one somebody actually walks in to to find that somebody has has killed themselves but it happens during the day in an office and you don't get like it's really sad but you don't get this eeriness you don't get this sort of it's more kind of like the sad inevitable than the what the hell is going on here and having the ending be on this really discordant disquieting note really like it takes us back to that scene where donna is talking to hunt and she shows that little she cracks open just a little bit of that vulnerability and goes i don't know if i have the strength for that and you're like hold the phone did this happen to gordon last time round like is this the extent that that failure took him to and suddenly you see that conversation and why she might have felt particularly vulnerable to hunt at that moment you you see it all much more clearly and you also understand the importance of the deal that she struck with him and why she struck that deal with him so it what that scene really really reminded me of is uh the west wing so there's a bit in the west wing where you know the big revelation about the president and and uh, sorry spoilers ahead for the west wing but guys it was on like 20 <laughs> years ago you're just gonna have to catch up now uh yeah the big revelation in in the early season is that the president has ms uh, and that they have kept this from the American public in order for him to run for president. And then later on, when he says that he's going to run for re-election, his wife, the first lady, is furious with him because, as she says, and the line is, we had a deal, Jed. Uh, and she she kind of yells it at him because she knows that he's going to get more ill. She knows that the story is going to break. And, you know, she agreed to it because she felt like they could manage it for the four years, but eight years suddenly seems like, a much much bigger and 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 you know all the pressures of a re-election campaign suddenly seem like a much bigger undertaking and it feels like donna is absolutely mapping the first lady's arc here and it, it just for a second it's that oh okay so you were willing to do it once but then when you saw the cost when you saw what it what it would you know take from you to do this again you had said you know never again we're not going to do it we have a deal you're going to commit yourself to your family instead and now that we see what Gordon can, what can happen to Gordon, where the, you know, the really dark places his mind can take him to. And the fact that, you know, 
theoretically, he put his kids in danger because, okay, they didn't get up to anything much, but, you know, they were in the house by themselves. They could have done anything. He cut himself. He left tools well, out. There are electricity references all yeah. over the place. For all we know, there's a loose wire somewhere, right? Absolutely. Oh, God, you're so right. That, like, exactly that. It's like all these sparks and, and things and the, the tap dripping. Yeah, and he's making them do stuff. Like, he's making them, like, he's helping them cook. And he's like, are you tough? Like, uh, don't let your sister talk to you like that. And there's a lot of him projecting issues that he's got with himself. But yeah, when they're under the sink, I'm kind of wondering, like, it's interesting hearing you said about the Donna walking in scene and that feeling like a horror movie because it certainly did. But also, there was something in her face where she she knew she had to go back because not because of what she did, but she knows that she can't leave him alone. He is unreliable. He is unstable. And it's kind of, it's interesting that she didn't really see the signs up until now, but I guess, why would she? He's been either drunk or at work. And I think she kind of felt like the project was over now, right? Everything she said has been like, Gordon has done a thing. He's done a thing and it's beautiful. He made the impossible happen. He's done it now. Yeah. Yeah. And it's almost like in this scene, she has to tackle the fact that he hasn't done it. He's still doing it. And it's taking more out of him than maybe he has left to get. Is she going to do something about it towards Joe for pushing him that way or or someone else? Who is she going to take it out on? Because one of the things that I noticed for Donna and, you know, let's let's discuss here is that she feels like the only one that's properly sort of thriving. And I say that because of the scene that she's had with the boardroom and the fact that she can be herself and really stepping up to the plate, not just because not just because Hunt told her to, but rather she feels like she's earned that that keep in a way. But is this going to, now that she's in this state of being bolder, but also seeing what it's doing to her husband and potentially her family, um, what's she going to do, right? Is she going to step up to the plate and, and start questioning whether they should move forward is is there going is there going to be a, a you know a case where she tells Hunt like actually buy them out they need money let's take it on take it away from Gordon like what's going to happen absolutely and like Donna is the one who's always seems on the cusp of something like she's about to do something and then Gordon usually but something will happen to to cut her off from that so she comes in to help Cameron and then it's a one off and she doesn't come back. Or, or whatever it is. So like, I, I'm all about seeing what Donna does next now. Um, obviously, I want to know like where Gordon is going to, to net out here because like genuinely by the end, you feel a sense of concern for this guy because like he may have been irritating. He may have been many things. He may have been a big like loser, but obviously now it's gone to a whole other level of this guy's actually maybe not that well. Uh, and needs some looking after and needs some help. Uh, and so you move you move from like you move from kind of Joe style contempt to a Donna style, oh my God, uh, are you okay? And I'm really curious to see what that does for his character in relation to the work but and 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 Joe, but also in relation to his wife, who we know now is, you know, susceptible to distraction is, trying to find fulfillment in a bunch of different ways and kind of running up against brick walls and their relationship is is can only get more interesting from here. 
Yeah, and, and mind you, we don't know if at this stage, again, the creators knew whether they were getting a season two. So it makes the entire the rest of you know the, the three episodes that we have left seem really uh, unpredictable. Uh, I kind of wish this episode would have aired sooner down the line, even though it's sort of being built up to it, just because it's such a great episode that I think really could have recaptured a lot of people that maybe I dropped off. But we got four seasons out of the show. I'm not complaining. Um, one one last bit of uh, fun fact, fun trivia for, for all of you listening is that the first Pattinson portable computer was called the small one. Huh. So does that tell us anything about whether something like Giant is going to flop? Or, well, that's or the other thing. Playing, it's like, what are we playing with? Wasn't that the whole model for this thing was that it was going to be twice as fast and half the weight? Like. Because they even talk about restructuring it, so it take and it takes it a shade over fifteen pounds or whatever. Like fifteen pounds is insanely heavy, but at the time would have been nothing for that kind of computing power. Uh, so yeah, like giant. I, but I love the fact that Gordon complains that Joe has come up with a name that has two meanings. Like it, you know, Joe sees it as soaring above, and Gordon sees it as exhaust fumes. And then the one that he parries with almost insultingly is supposed to kind of mock its size but also suggests something incredible and and you know that whole sideshow piece that then he talks about with the pt barnum story and so there's no there's no name here that isn't going to carry a massive weight of double meaning uh and i love that so do i because the level of detail that the creators have gone into to just include all these references for you to find i mean it's just amazing and it continues to help shape shape the world that they live in. Um, I'm really looking forward to to seeing what happens because I honestly do not remember from nope. when I watched this five years ago. So I'm so looking forward to it. It's like, you know, seeing it with fresh eyes for the first time. So I love the episode. Yeah, I loved it too. And I'm amazed by how much character development detail I can remember in terms of sort of emotional arc. And how little actual plot detail has stayed with me. So I feel like I, I don't have to pretend, <laughs> yeah. like projecting forward, because I'm like, I really can't remember what happens as a result of this. So that's fine. You're getting it all for real. <laughs> um, on that note, uh, if you, like us, would like to remember what happens in season uh, one, episode eight, uh, which is called the 214s or the 214s, I'm not even sure, uh, we will be back with that next week uh and here to talk about all the things that we find interesting about it thank you so much uh to everyone who's downloaded and listened to an episode so far uh we appreciate it hugely uh anything any feedback you want to throw our way we are here for it you can find us on twitter and it's the initials of the podcast so tttgyttt um, but please come and tweet stuff at us, stuff that we've missed, stuff, stuff that we talked about that you love too, stuff that you disagree about, stuff that you uh, would like to, us to talk about in the future, because I think we're going to do some sort of wrap up episode for, for season one as well. So anything that you think we should specifically cover in that, we'd love to hear from you. Even better, please subscribe to the podcast in your podcast app of choice. We are in all major uh, streaming platforms and it would mean a lot for you to share with other Hole and Catch Fire fans where you think they would really enjoy listening to the two of us just gush about what a great show it is. Thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you on the next one.